0: Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people in politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Nancy Tung, a candidate for district attorney. She's a longtime prosecutor practicing for 11 years in the San Francisco District Attorney's office before recently transferring to Alameda County. We're talking today about what she'd do to address the city's biggest problems, from untreated mental illness on our streets, to open-air drug dealing, to car break-ins and other property crime. She's also got some good tips for where to go for the city's best burritos and cocktails. I'll be right back with Nancy Tung. Nancy Tung, it's good to see you today.
1: Thank you, Heather, I'm pleased to be here.
0: First, I was hoping we could do a little getting to know you session. If you can kind of sum up where you grew up, um, where you went to school, and what you do now.
1: Okay. Well, um, I kind of grew up all over the place. Uh, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. Um, in my memory, it's like being one of six Chinese families in the whole state. Um, um, but, you know, I have a deep love and affection for Louisiana. Uh And anytime I can get a good beignet, that's (laughs) always a plus. Um, We moved to California when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And um, we're in Northern California for a bit. And then um, I did high school in Southern California. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a bedroom community in the San Gabriel Valley called Arcadia, mm-hmm. and I went to Arcadia High School. Um, I went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad and finished there in three years, and then went straight to law school at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington D.C., um, which was an amazing experience, I if bet. you can imagine learning about the law like in the shadow of the Supreme Court it was definitely something that um, was Uh life-changing and then um, I became a lawyer and came back to California. Um, I took the bar and passed in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, I am technically in my 20th year of practice. Um, I spent my first year out of law school as a civil practitioner um, doing general business litigation and decided that it wasn't for me and that really where my heart was was in public service. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd done a lot of kind of governmenty things mm-hmm. uh, over the course of high school and college and law school. Um and so when I when I had an opportunity to come to San Francisco um, and work in the Attorney General's office, I rushed right to it. And so since 2001, I've been a public prosecutor um, for the last 18 plus years uh, in the Attorney General's office, and uh, 11 years of um, of that 18 year process is in the. San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Uh-huh. For the last couple of years, I've been in the Alameda County DA's office. But um, my husband and I are still living in San Francisco. We're raising our twenty one month old son here, uh-huh. um, and he he's the best thing I've ever done with my oh, life. He really is. Great. Yeah.
0: You've been critical of the current District Attorney and the criminal justice system in San Francisco overall. Do you think this is a failure across the board, um, or? You know, is it a problem with all the law enforcement agencies in San Francisco or does the blame fall squarely on the DA? Where are we going wrong?
1: Uh, I think there's been a breakdown in a lot of different places. And so you can't really say that one one agency is to blame for all of the problems in San Francisco. Um, but I think you can start by saying that um, the relationship between the DA's office and the police department has um Greatly deteriorated, mm-hmm. and as San Francisco PD is one of the most important agencies that we work with in San Francisco, um, I think it's critically important to have um, those bridges and those relationships to make sure that you know law enforcement is on the same page, that we put our resources to use in uh, a way that is benefiting the public and that we serve the most vulnerable populations in the city, um, which I think we have failed to do mm-hmm. over the last. Um, Decade or so, um, if not longer. Mm
0: -hmm. The recent assault by a mentally ill homeless man of a woman near the Embarcadero has gotten a lot of attention, in large part because the crime was captured um, on a really horrifying security camera video. Is that an example to you of a broken system? And if you were the DA, uh, what would you have done differently in this case?
1: So I think there are a lot of different points where. the DA's office has gone wrong in that particular case and um, where maybe we have, have failed to make it a persuasive argument um, about certain types of conditions that require confinement in order to achieve public safety. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I think is really important is that, um, that we really protect victims at every step of the proceedings, and that even begins before we arraign a case, and so um, I think that where we can do better is that we um, make sure to reach out to victims as a case is getting charged, and not until we not wait until after an arraignment or after something already has happened in court mm-hmm. to give the victim an opportunity to make a statement to the prosecutor that can be represented in court, mm-hmm. or to update the prosecutor on a condition. So I think uh, the prosecutor in this particular case said that the victim didn't have any injuries, but in fact she had like an injury to her wrist. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, to really make sure that we protect victims in the process because they didn't ask to be, you know, assaulted or, um, you know, threatened with a knife or anything else. Um, But I think that's one place where we can start to really – intervene in the process on the side of the victim. Now, in terms of what happened in court with this person who was um, released from custody, I mean, I, I think I've been pretty vocal about saying that the judge made the wrong decision mm-hmm. in this case when um, the public safety uh, assessment says that the person should be detained when indications in the police report are that this is a violent crime where the defense attorney himself is admitting that there's uh, there are some mental health issues, mm-hmm. that detention is what I think is warranted because you could say like, OK, we're going to send you to treatment. But that doesn't stop a person from walking away from treatment. And if you've got this person who has no local ties, um, who has um, demonstrated this aberrant behavior, who has really violently assaulted a woman, I mean, even just hearing about it, you don't necessarily need to see the videotape to know that this is a very serious case. And that somebody who has drug addiction problems or uh, mental health problems is not going to just stay in a place. Mm -hmm. And we can't – we can't take the risk that um, that he is going to walk away from a program and we won't be able to find him again mm-hmm. or just say, OK, well, you know, come back on September 12th. Let's see
0: what happens. Uh, yeah. You
1: know, I, I don't think that um, when we are talking about public safety that we should be taking those risks with the public.
0: A large percentage of people in jail are mentally ill. What would you do to ensure they get diverted into programs that help them and also keep the public safe, especially for those with a history of violence?
1: Well, I think we, we still need to support programming within the jails. Mm-hmm. Um, San Francisco is actually one of the most pro- – has one of the most progressive criminal justice systems and um, jailing systems. And The sheriff's department has really, really um, advanced programs in terms of education, therapies, drug treatment, and to make sure that we support those functions within the jail um, instead of saying, well, the only thing we can do is either put somebody in jail or put them in An unlocked facility where they might get treatment and walk away. Mm -hmm. I think that's not that's not the right place for us in terms of public safety, but also being, um, you know, compassionate about people who have um, mental health issues or drug addiction issues. Mm -hmm. So um, but we also shouldn't be sacrificing public safety at the same time. So just really supporting supporting the programming within the jails and then also supporting, once people have been stabilized, um, the specialty courts that have access to more resources. Mm-hmm. So like things like veterans court, behavioral health court, drug court, um, young adult court that will actually kind of wrap around the defendant and then um, get that person to a place where they can exit the system because I think that's ultimately what we all want is um, – somebody who comes into the criminal justice system that we can rehabilitate Mm -hmm. and exit them out of the system.
0: Would you support expanding the conservatorship program? Currently, um, a new report shows that San Francisco has dropped in the number of people it's conserving by 50% in just the past few years and conserves far fewer people per capita than neighboring counties like Marin and San Mateo. Where do you stand on that?
1: I think that um, we can do more with the tools we have. Um, And in terms of Conserving more people who meet the criteria, I think that's an important way to start it. I know that you know with um, with the new housing conservatorship, they've they've hoped to broaden that, but you know in the first year, I think that program is only expected to reach five people. Mm-hmm. So, if we can use what tools that we have available already, I think we can move San Francisco towards um, being a more humane place and not waiting for people to get involved in the criminal justice system in order to get them help.
0: Also, San Francisco doesn't conserve uh, very many people under the gravely disabled part of the state law. They focus more on the um, imminent danger to self or others, but actually people can be conserved if they're gravely disabled and cannot provide for their own food, shelter, or clothing. Would Do you think that more people in San Francisco um, should be mandated to receive treatment because of that? I, I think that we can use that, and definitely
1: it would address a lot of the people that we see on the street. Mm-hmm. Um what we see now is not working, no. right? And um, to be able to get people into a place where, um, you know, sometimes you don't – if you are in need of conservatorship,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're not – that means that you don't know that you need it mm-hmm. yourself, right? right? And so if we can actually step in as, you know, sort of like the state parent mm-hmm. and get that person to a place where they're in treatment and housed and um, – Receiving medical services, then I think we should. Mm-hmm. I think we should try to do more with the tools that we have, and you know, if that means that we conserve people for a year at a time while we stabilize them, then yes, let's do it so that you know we don't let people die on the streets. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is a crisis point at this point at, at this juncture.
0: Yes. And how would you make progress on the scourge of open air drug dealing, particularly in the Tenderloin and South of Market neighborhoods?
1: Well, I think that the inaction. Um, at this point has really um, pushed it to a point where now the U.S. Attorney's Office Mm -hmm. has decided that they're going to take action. And you know what? I'm all for it because Mm -hmm. um, really what has been happening in the Tenderloin is unacceptable. Um, The Tenderloin is – home to the largest concentration of children in the city, the second largest concentration of elders in the city. It is the last place where we have permanent affordable housing in a a neighborhood that won't gentrify um, like other neighborhoods like the Mission has because of that permanent affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was a narcotics prosecutor for two years, 10 years ago. In San Francisco? In San Francisco. And, uh, you know, 50 to 60% of my cases came out of the Tenderloin. And it has not gotten any better. In fact, I feel like it's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the open-air drug dealing has affected the people who live there in the Tenderloin every single day. It has affected that neighborhood so gravely. Um, you know, you have kids walking around that, you know, see people with needles in their arms every day drug dealers on the corners. And it's not necessarily about like, you know, there, there are these wonderful programs that I don't know if you've heard of Safe Passage. I talk about Safe Uh Passage a lot. But you can explain it. Yeah, the the program is amazing to me. They just had their 10-year anniversary. And it's a program that is currently under the umbrella of the Tenderloin uh, Community Benefit District. Mm -hmm. Um, It started out with a group of moms. Uh, who live in the Tenderloin, who decided, we want our kids to be able to walk from the Tenderloin Community School um, down the street, five blocks, to their after-school programs without being harassed by drug dealers, without having to be exposed to kind of the day-to-day violence and deterioration of the Tenderloin. And so they would set up on Every single corner on the south side of Turk Street for five blocks, they get volunteers together and they basically act like crossing guards so that – clear the corners so mm-hmm. that, you know, so that the kids can have like an hour a day where they walk down the street and they don't have to be exposed to this. Um, and the program has been around for 10 years and, you know, they serve hundreds of kids Every day they serve the elderly every day, getting them from point A to point B so that they don't have to worry about what's coming up on the next corner. And to me, that is one of the most heartwarming things about this wonderful community. But it's also one of the saddest things yeah. because it means that we have utterly failed mm-hmm. in, in terms of public safety, in the way that uh, law enforcement has not worked to protect this community. And if really we are a progressive, democratic city that really wants to protect the most vulnerable and the most weak and the people who are not able to help themselves, who aren't able to hire, like, private security to patrol the streets, to get drug dealers off their corners or um, make sure their cars aren't broken into. We have failed. Mm -hmm. We have failed in the tenderloin. And I think that we should be doing more. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, it's not... Public safety is not a one-size-fits-all kind of solution, and definitely there are are places in the city that have more violent crime, that have more, um, like, some of this tolerated drug crime, um, and we shouldn't be tolerating that in any neighborhood.
0: What did you make of the federal government's decision to ramp up its enforcement on dealing in that neighborhood? Was that a sign to you that City Hall is completely, you know, isn't up to the task?
1: I think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that because we haven't done anything for years and years and years, um, that the U.S. attorney stepping in is a sign that, you know, that's a backstop. Mm -hmm. It's a backstop that um, somebody else is going to come in and, um, and really take care of the problems that we have not taken care of ourselves.
0: And currently there's kind of a look the other way when it comes to um, injection, uh, injection drug use and other drug use on the streets. People are pretty much allowed to do it wherever with no ramifications. What do you think about that?
1: I think that it's it's a really sad state of affairs when, um, number one, um, we allow people who are just walking down the street to be exposed to that, especially children. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, that we say that it 's okay to walk by a person who is high and passed out on the street who is also in a completely vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again, like there are law enforcement tools that we can use, uh, not necessarily to um, to throw people in jail but to at least get them off the streets so then get them to a safe place so that um, we can intervene at the earliest point. I mm-hmm. mean why do we have to wait till a person actually commits like a violent crime in order to intervene. No, we have law enforcement tools that we can use to get the person off the street and then into, say, like a place where they have um, services offered, medical tre- treatment offered, um, social services, mm-hmm. um, drug treatment programs. And I think the more times you offer intervention, the more likely somebody is able to accept it at some point down the line. Mm-hmm.
0: There seems to be some confusion about what it means that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. As DA, how would you like to see the city handle undocumented immigrants who are arrested for serious crimes?
1: So, you know, there are there are limited circumstances under the sanctuary city law where we can um, where the sheriff's department will actually um, comply with a notice mm-hmm. um, to immigration officials. And that's when a person's been convicted um, of a serious or violent crime within a certain time frame. Um I think that when we have serious crimes um against people p- people who are charged that are undocumented that we need to we need to prosecute them mm-hmm. and we need to prosecute them in a way that um is appropriate with the circumstances so not just about you know is this person undocumented? So we need to give them a lighter deal. Um, that seems to be what happens
0: some of the time.
1: Yeah, some of the time. It de- but it depends on the circumstances because I can understand um, where we use our prosecutorial discretion in cases where there's no, it's a nonviolent offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so say like something that has to do with theft that maybe an immigration has has immigration consequences and trying to work around that to make sure that hold the person responsible, but mm-hmm. not make it a deportable offense. Mm-hmm. I understand that. But I mean, if I'm the DA, I'm not going to make an immigration safe plea for somebody who's committed a murder. Mm-hmm. You know, So there's, there's a wide range of discretion that goes along with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you have charged the officers in the Mario Woods case?
1: You know, I've looked at that case. And I think the facts of it are difficult. Um, I I don't think that I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the DA's office, the way that it was presented um, and investigated and laid out in their charging or non charging decision, I think pretty much puts out put the put the facts out in a way that um, shows why it shouldn't be charged. Now, I mean, it's a difficult circumstance, I think, and it's it's hard for the families a uh, family of Mario Woods. Um, I think that where we can focus um, these type of um, police involved um, shootings is that it's really about escal- de-escalation rather than um, you know trying to trying to force a prosecution into a, in a into a fact pattern that doesn't. Um, have the evidence to support a prosecution Mm -hmm. um so focusing more time and energy on de-escalation um and making sure that the police department is doing everything they can in the circumstance um to not use deadly force um but in that particular case i you know the the facts were not facts did not support prosecuting those uh, law enforcement officers for them Mm -hmm.
0: Is San Francisco doing enough to address its car break-in and property crime epidemic? And if not, what would you do differently?
1: So I think that, you know, with respect to the um, car break-ins, we have a lot of people coming uh, in out of – from San Francisco – from outside of San Francisco into uh, the city to do these crimes. And it's not just one or two people who are down on their luck who are breaking cars. Really, it's organized crime. That's – and that is – um, proliferating. Um and you've reported on this too. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean <laughs> um I, I think that we need to do more to work with other agencies, um, first with San Francisco Police Department, but then also other agencies um because the, the car break-in epidemic is not just here, but it's farther reaching and we don't just have um criminals that stop at the county line because it's an artificial jurisdictional line mm-hmm. um they come into San Francisco from all over the place to do it and in the 2016 civil grand jury report they found that 70 to 80% of the car break-ins in San Francisco are committed by organized crime mm-hmm. um and so we really need to focus our efforts on breaking those rings and um Really bringing prosecutions um, in a smart way to hold those rings accountable, um, working, with, uh, working with the police to, to figure out where the hot spots are and to take down the rings so that we don't just kind of pick around the corners or mm-hmm. the edges of the problem and try to prosecute one person at a time. Let's do Let's do some big prosecutions. Let's work together to really solve the problem and show people that they can't come into San Francisco and commit crime and expect that nothing's going to happen.
0: There's been a rash of pedestrian deaths on the streets of San Francisco this year as well as um, some bicyclists um, who've died. And the city has aimed for um, eliminating all traffic deaths by 2024 through its Vision Zero program, but we're actually going backwards. And um, there's more now than there were <laughs> in previous years. Do you see a role for the district attorney to play in that problem? Yeah. I mean, I think that whenever we
1: have a pedestrian death or a bicyclist death, um, we need to investigate those cases as if they were homicides and make sure that if there has been a crime committed that we prosecute those crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, in a, in a more civil enforcement type of role that to the extent that um, some of these um, collisions, traffic de- fatalities are caused because of bad behavior of Um, say Uber or Lyft drivers that are, you know, not following um, traffic rules or running red lights or um, whatever else, to the extent that the companies have some responsibility in making sure that their drivers are good drivers Mm -hmm. and are following the rules, um, that maybe we can exert some pressure there. Um, And definitely, um, you know, the question of DUIs has come up Mm -hmm. in some of our debates um, and whether or not there should be um, trial prosecution of DUIs. Um, one of my opponents said that um, the way that he would solve the backlog in um, our trial courts was to say that no first-time DUIs would go to trial because they're victimless crimes. I completely disagree with that. Who said that? Um, I don't know. Maybe you've already interviewed him, but um, it was Chesa. Chesa okay. Boudin. Um, and, I mean, this was at um, the ACLU debate that we had earlier this month, Um you know, and this is one of the places where, you know, myself, sorry, myself as a career prosecutor, and you know, having prosecuted DUIs, I can see the value in making sure that we ha- hold people responsible for doing, um, and that it's not a victimless crime. I mean, anytime somebody drives, gets behind the wheel of a car, that is like. A two-ton vehicle barreling down the streets of San Francisco, its you're putting public safety at jeopardy. You're putting pedestrians at risk. You're putting bicyclists at risk. You're putting other motorists at risk. Um, you're putting your own passengers at risk. And to say that, oh, just because nobody died and it's a first-time DUI, that doesn't actually intervene at the earliest point. Mm-hmm. That is – and statistics – that I've seen is that people drive under the influence uh, over the legal limit 80 times before they're caught. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was on the MAD website. Um, Uh um, I pulled that statistic from there. But I mean, it's staggering. Yeah. And to say that, well, I'm going to solve this backlog by saying I'm not going to prosecute any first-time DUIs. I'm going to divert them. I mean, number one, diverting, you cannot divert a charged DUI. It's illegal under the penal code. And number two, this is not a victimless crime. No. This, these are – I mean this is integral to public safety and people in fact do not drive under the influence. They choose to do um, either taxis or Ubers or Lyfts because they know that the ramifications are so serious mm-hmm. and they should be serious.
0: How would you grade the performance of District Attorney George Gascone? Well, I
1: guess you didn't say the questions would be softballs, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in softball questions. Okay. Um, you know,
1: he has done some really innovative things in terms of criminal justice reform. And I will give him credit for that. Um, he was never a prosecutor before he became the head prosecutor in San Francisco. And so – He never tried a case, He right? never tried a case. Uh, and, you know, for people who think that just because you have a law degree and you've been a police chief – um, means that you can be the DA, I'd like to say, well, think about I've been a prosecutor for 18 years. Does that make me qualified to be police chief? Mm-hmm. And myself, I would say, no, I'm not qualified to be <laughs> You're the You're not running chief. for police chief? No, I'm not running for police chief. Um, I think that um, in terms of management of the office itself, um, he has not done a good job of it. Um, there has been a significant um, significant levels of attrition in the attorney ranks and the DA investigator ranks and the support staff um, throughout his tenure. Um, he has he has really failed to make sure that the office is in good shape mm-hmm. in terms of being able to do the day-to-day prosecutions that keep everybody safe in this city. Um, so, for example, um, from 2018 until today... There were 19 attorneys who left last year and 24 who have left this year um, out of 140 attorneys. Mm-hmm. So from January of 2018 until now, about 30 percent of the attorney workforce has left the office. Wow! And we're not talking about retirements. Mm-hmm. We're talking about mid-level attorneys to very young attorneys who have left the office because um, of an inability of the office to recruit, train, and retain talent in san francisco and what that means is the turnover number one you've got to fill those spots and they can't fill those spots fast enough and number two you've got a demoralized workforce who's now carrying more than they should be that means that you can't pay the same amount of attention to a case as it than if you had a, a well-functioning office because they're not fully staffed they're not fully staffed yeah um and it It makes a difference. Mm -hmm. It makes a difference in the way that you can prepare for court. It makes a difference in the way that you can prepare for trials, Mm -hmm. Um, the way that you are able to interact with victims. And um, I think that whoever steps into these shoes next is going to have some big challenges Mm -hmm. to rebuild the office uh, after George Gascon leaves.
0: So what grade would you give him?
1: I don't know. Is this like a – multi multi subject uh, report card or an average <laughs> i'd say a b minus
0: oh i heard that grade from another one of your
1: <laughs> i mean i don't know i'm kind of a s- soft grader i guess
0: but <laughs> a b a b minus well you've survived the serious questions and now we move on to the lightning round excellent where is your favorite place in san francisco to get a burrito um,
1: so if I'm in the mission, I like to go to Pancho Villa on uh-huh. 16th Street. Um,
0: that was the mayor's choice, so you're in good company. Oh, okay.
1: And then – um, but I have to say this is like an undiscovered gem except for people who are by the Hall of Justice. There's a taco truck called El Norteño uh-huh. um, who has – like the best food. Ooh. Yeah, really, really good. I love their street tacos. Uh-huh. And then they also do a consommé that if you're just like a little bit under the weather, it's the best thing oh, to cool. eat. Yeah.
0: Good tip. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Mm. Well, I think I have two. So um Always
1: Be My Maybe. Oh, that was good. Um, that uh, That's a recent, like, Netflix yeah. kind of release. Yeah, Wong. Um, so that one was actually filmed. Although there were some scenes that I was like, that is not a San Francisco street <laughs> yeah, sign and like that is not sketchy. a San Francisco bus. Um, but the other one is um, not filmed in San Francisco, but it's set in San Francisco. It's Inside Out. It's a oh, Pixar right. uh-huh. Disney that film a great one. Um, that, you know— is, uh, is about a little, uh, little girl who has to move to San Francisco and deal with broccoli on pizza. <laughs> that was and, the best scene. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Where do you like to go for a stiff drink? Um, so I live in South of Market,
1: and um, there's a great pizza place called Zero Zero, mm-hmm. and they have an amazing bar. Uh-huh. Um, so my favorite drink to get there is an old-fashioned with Four Roses bourbon. Okay, And it's delicious. I can tell
0: that you have been listening to my podcast. (laughs) Good job. I do my research. (laughs) What was your first concert? My first
1: concert was Depeche Mode, I think, at the Great Western Forum in Los Angeles. Um, That was a long time ago.
0: (laughs) And what was the last book you read?
1: Um, The last book I read... Um, it's been a while since I've read a lot of books. Well, I mean, the last book I read was, um, Llama Llama Red Pajama, (laughs) which I read to my son last night at bedtime. Um, you know.
0: Underrated. (laughs) Underrated and
1: a little bit of a tongue twister. But, you know, at the end, um, you know, Llama Llama Red Pajama goes to sleep. So That's, that's a good thing.
0: That's the end goal for every mother of a baby. Yes. What is your favorite depiction of lawyers in movies or on TV?
1: I'm a big Law & Order fan, although Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily represent reality. Because everything
0: gets wrapped up in an hour.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, this is one of the challenges you have as a trial attorney, a a prosecutor, is sometimes what we call the CSI effect, (laughs) where um, juries feel that, you know, because they've watched so much CSI, that there's always a fingerprint, there's always DNA, Uh uh, there's always a videotape, and, um, you know, that That if you don't have this type of evidence, that you can't convict. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, part of being a trial attorney and part of being a trial prosecutor is really educating the jury. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, we kind of discuss that during jury selection. That's always Interesting. interesting to see what people say.
0: Do you hereby promise you will not blame the SFPD or Superior Court judges 100% of the time the Chronicle calls you asking about a case that's gone awry? Yes, (laughs) I
1: do. I actually think that we need to have more accountability um, to the people of San Francisco because it's not about um, blaming somebody else for something else for all the bad things that have gone wrong in the city. It's about taking some responsibility Mm -hmm. and being accountable yourself to the voters. Um, And when you start to do that, saying that I'm going to do more, I'm going to work with the people, or I'm going to fight back Mm -hmm. and push back against the things that I think are wrong in the system. Um, When you have an independent view and you you don't owe anyone political favors, um, then I think you have a better platform to do that. Mm -hmm.
0: And lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? I always walk my dog. Hmm. Always. Always walk my dog. And you always pick up after your dog? Always. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) There are a lot of dog walkers in this city who do not. Yes. (laughs) On that note, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Nancy Tung for joining me today, to King Kaufman and Erica Carlos for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.